like to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Chuck Swindoll recorded some of his thoughts as a father in his book, Come Before Winter. Someday when the kids are grown, things are going to be a lot different. The garage won't be full of bikes, electric train tracks on plywood, sawhorses surrounded by chunks of two-befores, nails, a hammer, and saw, unfinished experimental projects, and the rabbit cage. I'll be able to park both cars neatly in just the right places and never again stumble over skateboards, a pile of papers saved for the school fund drive, or the bag of rabbit food now split and spilled. Someday when the kids are grown, the kitchen will be incredibly neat, the sink will be free of sticky dishes, the garbage disposal won't be choked on rubber bands or paper cups, the refrigerator won't be clogged with nine bottles of milk, and we won't lose the tops to jelly jars, ketchup bottles, the peanut butter or mustard. The water jar won't be put back empty. The ice trays won't be left out overnight. The blender won't stand for six hours, coated with the remains of a midnight malt. And the honey will stay inside the container. Someday when the kids are grown, my lovely wife will actually have time to get dressed leisurely. A long, hot bath, time to do her nails without answering a dozen questions and reviewing spelling words. Someday when the kids are grown, the instrument called a telephone will actually be available. It won't look like it's growing from a teenager's ear. It will simply hang there, silently and amazingly available. It will be free of lipstick, human saliva, mayonnaise, corn chip crumbs, and toothpicks stuck in those little holes. Someday when the kids are grown, I'll be able to see through the car windows. Fingerprints, tongue licks, sneaker footprints, and dog tracks, nobody knows how, will be conspicuous by their absence. The back seat won't be a disaster area. We won't sit on jacks or crayons anymore. The tank will not always be somewhere between empty and fumes. And glory to God, I won't have to clean up dog messes another time. Someday when the kids are grown, we will return to normal conversations. You know, just plain American talk. Gross won't punctuate every sentence seven times. Yuck will not be heard. Hurry up, I gotta go will not accompany the banging of fists on the bathroom door. It's my turn won't call for a referee. And a magazine article will be read in full without interruption, then discussed at length without mom and dad having to hide in the attic to finish the conversation. Someday when the kids are grown, we won't run out of toilet tissue. My wife won't lose her keys. We won't forget to shut the refrigerator door. I won't have to dream up new ways of diverting attention from the gumball machine. Or have to answer, Daddy, is it a sin that you're driving 47 in a 30 mile per hour zone? Or promise to kiss the rabbit goodnight. Or wait up forever until they get home from dates. Or have to take a number to get a word in at the supper table. Or endure the pious pounding of one Keith Green just below the level of acute pain. Yes, someday when the kids are grown, things are going to be a lot different. One by one, they'll leave our nest. 
and the place will begin to resemble order and maybe even a touch of elegance. The clink of china and silver will be heard on occasion. The crackling of the fireplace will echo through the hallway. The phone will be strangely silent. The house will be quiet and calm and always clean and empty and filled with memories and lonely and we won't like it at all. And we'll spend our time not looking forward to someday but looking back to yesterday and thinking maybe we can babysit the grandkids and get some life back into this place. You know, it's okay as parents to look forward to someday. In fact, that's your goal. To prepare them for someday when you will gently shove them out of the nest and see them maybe struggle at first but then watch them as they soar and as they build their own nest. It's okay to look forward to someday as long as in the process you're not neglecting today. Because if that's the case, then you will spend someday regretting yesterday. Harry Ironside founded a seminary built a church from 10 to 3,000 at the turn of the century. He published an extensive set of commentaries that you'll find in our library. But his two sons didn't even attend his funeral because they didn't have a dad. He was a pastoraholic. And I'm sure if he had to do it over again, he would spend a little less time in ministry and a lot more time at home. This is the fifth Sunday in our series, Turning Houses into Homes. And as we come to chapter 6, the focus switches from the relationships between husbands and wives to the relationships between parents and children. And I want to take a Sunday to devote to each. And since this is Father's Day, I'm going to switch the scriptures a little bit and I'm going to jump ahead to verse 4 and then come back to the first three verses next time. Notice verse 4. And fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the word fathers there is the Greek word pateros, which is the common word for fathers. It could be translated parents, as it is in Hebrews 11.23, where we read, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. And obviously the translation would fit in this passage because both parents must be involved in child-rearing. But I think that Paul chose this word pateras for a reason. I think part of that reason is because perhaps fathers are most likely to become impatient and harsh with our kids and be the ones that may provoke them to anger. And fathers tend to have a little more difficult time with raising kids than mothers do. And fathers are the ones who are ultimately held accountable for the upbringing of the children because we are the head of the family. So Ephesians 6.4 is a message to fathers on Father's Day. Now, being a father is a great privilege and blessing. Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. The word blessed means happy. How happy is the man whose quiver is full of children? You say, well, how could a man who's got a quiver full of children be happy? 
Well, Proverbs 23, 24 holds the answer. It says, The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who begets a wise son will be glad in him. The Lord gives children, and they can make you happy, but in order for that to happen, you have to raise them to be righteous. God has put them in your quiver like arrows. You have to shoot them in the right direction. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, verse 4 contains an important little phrase. It says, you have to bring them up. Children have to be brought up. Children come into this world with a basic problem, and that is that they're children. And they have to be brought up. Paul said in Proverbs 22, 15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And in Proverbs, or in Psalm 51, 5, David said, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin... My mother conceived me. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. So we have to bring up children. You say, well, how do we do that? Well, Paul gives us two exhortations in verse 4. One is negative, the other is positive. First of all, he gives us a negative at the beginning of verse 4. And fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger. Don't provoke your children to anger. Now, how do you do that? Well, let's think about some ways that you can provoke your children to anger. Number one would be by being too strict. Set guidelines that are stricter than God's. And let them run into restrictions every time they turn around. Don't ever trust them. Don't ever let them take any risks. Don't let them develop independence. Don't let them develop any confidence. Smother them. Now, obviously, when a child is very small, we have to establish extra guidelines. When Lindsay was little, we put a fence up in front of the downstairs stairway. And when we took a walk together, I had a rule that we couldn't cross the road unless she had a hold of my hand. But see, one of the challenges of parenting is knowing when to take those temporary fences down and when to relax those adjustable rules. And some parents never do that. If you put up too many fences and you never know when to take the temporary fences down, I'll tell you what will happen to your child. Your child will eventually jump over one of those fences and find out that he didn't get injured. And he'll think he can jump over any fence. And then he'll jump over one of God's fences and he'll reap the consequences. And I'll tell you what else will happen to your child if you're too strict. He will eventually resent you and react in anger and rebellion. Second way you can provoke your child to anger is to show favoritism. Say to one of your childs, why aren't you more like your brother? Why aren't you smart like your sister? She got a scholarship. Isaac and Rebekah had twins, and there's a tragic verse in Genesis 25, 28. It tells us that Isaac loved Esau, and Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, that's a scenario for failure, and that's exactly what happened in their family. Third way you can provoke your child to anger is discourage them. Always be negative. Discourage their dreams. When they come to you and say, Daddy, I'm going to be a doctor. Say to them, 
You could never be a doctor. When Ryan was younger, he decided he wanted to take up the guitar, so we bought him a cheap guitar, and we put him in lessons. And uh, pretty soon he quit the lessons and just started playing on his own, and, and uh, the fruit was not real evident. Uh, you know, when I would go by his room, I could hear about five chords going on in there. And then, then one day he came to us and said, I want to get a really nice guitar. And my first reaction was to say, you can't play the guitar. But I bit my lip because I knew that was one of his dreams. So we helped him get a real nice guitar. And now he plays real well on the guitar. See, what do I know? I, I always thought I could outrun him, too. <laughs> discourage his dreams and discourage his actions. Always be saying negative things. Always find the negative and emphasize it. See, as fathers, we have to look for and find those positive things in our children and then applaud them. Sometimes it's hard to find them. We have to find them and encourage them. Otherwise, we are provoking them to anger. Chuck Swindoll said, I'd much rather my family remember me as the dad who tossed their mother fully clothed into the swimming pool and lived to tell the story than the preacher who frowned too much, yelled too loud, talked too long, and died too young. Fourth way you can provoke your child to anger, try to live your life through them. You see that when you go down to the little league field. And you see a father driving his son to be a superstar because that's what he always wanted to be. Don't live your dreams through your children. Realize that your child is an individual and doesn't have to be an exact copy of you to be a success. Chuck Swindoll was recently on the cover of New Man magazine. He was wearing black leather and sitting on his Harley. People call him the Sermonator. What impressed me was that when I read the article, it explained that the reason that he took up riding the motorcycle is because his youngest son began riding the motorcycle. And he took up riding the motorcycle because he wanted to connect with his son. That's pretty impressive. He didn't say, son, if you want to spend time with me, you've got to come into my world. He said, I want to enter your world and get to know you better. Fifth way you can provoke your child to anger is let them think they're unwanted. We'd love to go, but what are we going to do with them? Let your children think that they're always in the way, and they will eventually resent you. And then a sixth way is neglect them. Just ignore them. Just don't set up any fences. And that one's implied in our verse. Look at verse 4. It says, And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That word but suggests a contrast. On one side is the discipline and instruction of the Lord. On the other side is anger. And what he's saying is either teach children or provoke them. Some of the angriest kids around are the ones who grow up without direction, without instruction, without limits. Those are many times the kids that end up in gangs because no one has ever shown them 
how to live. And I think perhaps the greatest abuse of all is to leave a child alone. David ignored his son Absalom and he became the greatest heartbreak in David's life. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. That's the negative exhortation. Then he gives us a positive exhortation. He says, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word discipline means chastening. It's the word used in Hebrews 12, 6, where it says, those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And the word instruction means teaching, warning, admonishing. So you are to teach your children, and then when they get out of line, you are to discipline them. Now, if you're going to discipline them effectively, you, number one, have to establish the guidelines. A lot of kids today are looking for boundaries. They're trying to figure out where they are. If you don't set down the guidelines, and it's like playing football without any sidelines. They don't know where to go. You've got to establish the guidelines. You've got to make those guidelines clear. And then you've got to define the punishment. Don't be like the mother in the drama who said, I'm going to wring your neck. Because you won't be able to carry through with that. You are to define the punishment. And the punishment Scripture advocates is spanking. You say, well, I don't think you really have to spank children. Well, that's interesting. God does. In Proverbs 13, 24, it says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Proverbs 22, 15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. And Proverbs 29, 15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Discipline is one of the best gifts that you can give to your child. And then after you've defined the discipline, you have to follow through. You have to be consistent. You have to do what you say you're going to do. And then fifthly, let me add, don't punish in anger. Punishment is not a way for you to relieve your anger. It's to be done lovingly and correctly. So he says you're to discipline and you're to instruct. Parents, you have the responsibility to teach your children. You can't leave that up to the schools. You can't even leave that up to the Sunday school. You've got to get involved in teaching them. One study revealed that the average time fathers spend with their five-year-old sons is 25 minutes a week. You can't even begin to teach and discipline your children in that amount of time. Instruction takes time. You know, when I reflect back on my childhood, there are a few little vivid memories that I have. They're like little snapshots. And what's interesting is, those that I can remember really well, almost all revolve around my dad. And I think the reason for that is because I needed him so much. And we all do as children. In fact, one of the very first memories that I remember as I go back as far as I can go is racing my dad in the backyard. And I don't know how old I was. I was a little toddler and we were racing through the backyard. And all I remember in that little snapshot is these two huge legs, these long legs next to me. 
And that's really the picture, the little snapshot that I took of that moment. I remember another occasion on a Friday night when Dad took my older brother and I to the park to swing on the swings. Now, I'm sure it didn't cross his mind at the time. He thought, well, I'll just take him to the park. But it stuck in my mind. My dad's taking me to the park to swing on the swings. I remember when Dad took me to the park and taught me how to ride a bike. And I remember him running along beside me and keeping the bike going. And that's such a vivid memory in my mind. I remember when he taught me how to fish. I don't fish, by the way, but he taught me. And we were up in Canada. On the lakes in Canada, you just throw the bait in and the fish jump on, so you don't have to know how to fish. And he took us out on the lake in a boat, and then we docked the boat by some rocks, and we were fishing there. And I remember the first time we caught a catfish. My dad had never seen a catfish before. And so he grabbed it, and it stung him, and, and he thought it was some kind of prehistoric animal. And so I still remember him taking that line and smashing that catfish against the rocks. <laughs> until it came off. But he was trying. I remember at the lake when he would take me and flip me out of the water and I would land in the water and I'd come back and say, do it again. And he'd do it again and do it again, do it again. You see, every one of those episodes said to me, you matter. You matter. And that's the foundation upon which my father could say things to me that I needed to know. He could teach me. He could warn me. He could encourage me. Listen, fathers. Whether you take this responsibility seriously or not, you are teaching your children. You say, well, I leave that up to my wife. No. The Bible spells out three responsibilities for a father. And every one of those responsibilities is fulfilled by doing what this verse says. One of those responsibilities you have as a father is that you are the family manager. One of the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3.4 is that he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Now, that's one of the qualifications for an elder, but it's also the expectation of every father. You may be an hourly employee at work, but when you come home, you are the manager. And a lot of fathers give 95% of their energy at work and come home with nothing left to give. That won't get the job done. Let me ask you a question. What would happen if you switched the energy you gave to your job with the energy you gave to your family? How would your job be going? And how would your family be going? I read about one man who had a plaque on his desk that he looked at every day and it said, leave some for home. That's what we've got to do. Most people agree that the best managers are those who stay in close proximity to those that they manage. So if you're going to manage your home, you've got to be there. Second responsibility of a father is that he's the family mentor. A mentor is one who teaches through relationship 
It's somebody who walks with you and teaches through the circumstances of life. And that's the role of a father in the home. Let me show you a passage. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. Then slide down to verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul says, we were relating to you like a father does his children. We were exhorting, encouraging, and imploring you. And we weren't simply giving you the message. We were imparting to you our own lives as well. That's what a father does. A father is the family mentor. And that's a crucial role. Because you are the one who shapes their concept of God. The Bible says that God is our father. And where do your children get their definition of father? From you. If you're loving and supportive, then that's probably what they're going to think of God as being. If you're harsh and demanding, then that will probably be their view of God. And they can never do enough to please Him. And you know the one who determines to a great extent how they're going to turn out? It's you, fathers. Just like the words of the song Brent sang, as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. Jesus said in Luke 6, 40, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. And the most significant teacher that your children have is you, their father. So we can paraphrase that verse. A child is not above his father, but all children, after they have been fully trained, will be like their fathers. It's a great responsibility. You know what power you also have as a father? You have the power to impact generations to come. Let me show you a verse. Look at Psalm 78. Psalm 78, beginning at verse 5. As I read these verses, I want you to count the generations. Verse 5. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God. That's four generations. Ryan ran in the 4 by 100 relay in the state track meet up at Jeff City, and when we were up there watching, they had the trials the first day, and, and the teams that finished the top four got into the finals. And as we were watching, there was a certain team, I'm not sure which school it was from, but they had made the handoffs, they had made the exchanges all the way around, and the final runner was sprinting down the track. He was in the top four, clearly. He was probably second. He got about three strides from the finish line, and he dropped the baton. And it was just a tragic scene to look at, the heartbreak of that. But what struck me was that not only was it heartbreaking for him, 
It was also heartbreaking for his three teammates. You see, he, one fella dropped the baton and all four were out of the finals. And that's the way it is with fathering. You're not in an individual event. If you drop the baton, it affects your children, your gr grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren. And on the other hand, when you run well and pass on the baton by mentoring your children, you impact generations to come for Christ. Now, mentoring is not just formal teaching. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Teaching is to be done when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking on the way, when you're lying down, when you're rising up. See, mentoring is more than just having formal devotions. Mentoring is walking through life with your children and being ready when those teachable moments come along to share with them. And I'll tell you something, they will remember those lessons far longer than they will remember your formal, your formal messages. Third and final responsibility of a father is that he is the family model. In his book, You Can Be a Great Parent, Charlie Shedd shares this essay written by an 11-year-old boy on what he liked best about his home. He said, My mother keeps a cookie jar in the kitchen, and we can help ourselves, except we can't have it if it's too close to mealtime. Only my dad can anytime. When he comes home from the office, he helps himself, no matter if it's just before we eat. He always slaps my mother on the behind and brags about how great she is and how good a cook she is. And then she turns around and they hug. The way they do it, you'd think that they just got married or something. It makes me feel good. This is what I like best about my home. That's a cute story, but that also tells us something. There are little eyes watching and your teaching doesn't just come from your lips. You have to connect the teaching that comes off your lips with the lifestyle you live out. You have to do more than just tell them. You have to show them. Every dad is the family role model, whether he wants a job or not. And in 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul writing to Timothy said, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear. Paul was telling Timothy to model what he preached. And he said, by doing so, you will bring salvation to those who hear. Now, if that is true of a church, it's certainly also true of a home. Your children need to hear instructions from your lips, and then they need to see it replayed in your life. Lot is the classic example of failure in this area. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7 says he was a righteous man, that is, he was a believer. But Lot's life contradicted his belief. He compromised himself for the prosperity around Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And he moved his family there, and pretty soon they were living the same lifestyle. And you remember the account. The two angels came to him and said, God is going to destroy these cities. And so Lot went immediately to tell his family, and Genesis 19.14 records it. It says, And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, and he said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. How sad. Lot's words didn't mean anything anymore because his credibility had already been shot. What kind of credibility do you have at home? You will leave with your children what you have lived out in your home. And you can either leave them a gift or a joke. Joe White, in his book, Looking for Leadership, recounts his dad's favorite poem, which he took as the motto of his life. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely show the way. The eyes a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Fine counsel can be confusing, but example is always clear. For I might understand you and the high advice you give, but there is no misunderstanding in how you act and live. You will leave with your children what you have lived out in your home. And I trust that you will be leaving them a godly heritage and not simply an inheritance. Maybe what we've talked about today is a little troubling to some of you because you think you've already blown it with your kids. If so, let me encourage you that it's never too late to start reclaiming lost ground. It's never too late to let Christ turn your life around. And in the process of turning your life around, He can begin to impact through you, your children, in some positive and powerful ways. But don't wait any longer. 